Let me ask you to grab your Bible and let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, chapter 9. If you get to the book of Psalms, run to the right a little bit and you'll come upon the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and uh, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes this morning and then we're going to be taking a break because we're stepping into uh, Missions Week next week. And so a special Sunday, next Sunday and the Sunday after that. So we'll be away from Ecclesiastes in our study after this morning, but we sure have some rich stuff, I think, waiting for us in this moment. If you need a Bible today and you got out of the house without yours, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to share a copy of the Word with you. And there's a note page. looks like this. Grab this note page, and uh, it will be a help along the way. And if this might be your first time with us, we're about midway through Chapter 9 of Solomon's Amazing Diary. Ecclesiastes is the diary that Solomon kept uh, as he made this up and down search for meaning and fulfillment, purpose and lasting satisfaction in his life. Solomon, as you know, if you've been on this journey with us from the beginning, has been bitterly disappointed up to this moment in his search for a fulfilling life. And there is a reason for that. He has limited his search for a satisfying life to a specific arena. What arena is that? An under-the-sun arena. That's where he has been confining his search for a fulfilling life. What makes Ecclesiastes not only amazingly helpful to us, but also somewhat difficult to understand at times, is that it is largely a book about what life looks like when you leave God out of your life. Life under the sun, a horizontal focus only. When we go above the sun where God is, invite him into our lives through a personal relationship with him through faith in the Lord Jesus, man, life becomes amazing. Life becomes exciting, fulfilling, and and loaded with purpose, loaded with promise. And so I would just ask you, church family, have you found that to be true? That when you go above the sun, life gets really great? Boy, I don't know. I'm not real convinced after that. <laughs> it is okay to say yes or amen or I agree. Life above the sun, S-U-N. Life in the sun, S-O-N. Yeah, that's a great life through faith in Jesus. Now, that is the place that Solomon will ultimately get to with us in his diary, but not till almost the very end of this book, the closing chapters. He has a few hard, under-the-sun realities he still needs to work through and expose. And so this morning, one of those places comes into view for us today. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9, under the heading, as you see it there on your note page, When life doesn't play by the rules. Two whole verses today, huh, Pastor Tim? Yep. What can I say? I'm feeling ambitious. (laughs) Now, last time, when we were unpacking verses 7 through 10, Solomon, who is stuck under the sun uh, in, in this particular moment, says, because life is short and... Everyone eventually dies whenever possible. Really enjoy the good that comes into your life. Sink your teeth into it. Live it full speed. Live it all out. Verse 7, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. 
verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you are going. Solomon says, squeeze all the enjoyment out of life you can. It's too short to do otherwise. And we, for our part, last time found it necessary to go above the sun and bring some balance to what he was saying. Yes, we would say, enjoy, really enjoy all the good that comes into your life, realizing that it all comes from one place. Where does it come from? Well, the good in our life comes from God, doesn't it? James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father to us. So enjoy it. Enjoy the good things that God gives, into you, gives to you. Uh, be thankful. Be grateful to him. And we noted last time, never, never allow his good gifts to become more important to you than he is. Do you remember that? In fact, we framed it this way. Every good gift must remain second to the giver who is first and to be praised God alone. Amen. Amen. So those are the takeaways from from verses seven through ten. And, and, and but Solomon didn't get that far with us. We had to go above the sun to catch that. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with gusto. Under the sun, live it all out because your life is really short. Now, having said that, we come to verses 11 and 12 and what is new ground for us today. And where does Solomon want to go after verses 7 through 10? Well, he wants to anticipate the person who hears his words about a short life and living hard. And he says, and he thinks, the person who says, hey, Solomon's right. I mean, life really is short. Therefore, I am going to do this life the way the world says to do it. I am going to live it faster, harder, stronger, more skillfully, with more intelligence, with with as much energy as I can muster. Because if I do, life's going to reward me with its good stuff. It's going to reward me with its best. That's the world's perspective. Solomon wants to get that person's attention. He wants to share a hard reality with the one who thinks, if I play by the rules under the sun, well, then I win. I win. He wants to get the attention of the one who's committed to a philosophy that says, in effect, if I work harder, if I play harder, if I do it longer, faster, and better, if I take care of myself physically, if I exercise, if I do it all with creativity and, and, and cleverly, I win the golden ticket, I, I get the corner office and the, the beautiful girl or the handsome guy and the big house and the 2.3 kids and, and the long life. Life's best belongs to me if I play by the world's rules. Under the sun, where God is left out, play by the rules and you win. That's what the world would say. But Solomon says, I wouldn't count on it. I wouldn't count on that. Verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, there's our phrase, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time 
and chance happened to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Well, those are two cheerful verses, aren't they? (laughs) You know what Solomon is trying to say to us? He, in effect, tells us here that if death is the one rule in this life that you can always count on, because that's what he was talking about, everybody goes to that that place, then it's really the only rule that you can count on. All other rules under the sun, they don't apply. It doesn't work like you think it will work. And he is emphatic about this. Purposely placing, if you notice, a negative at the beginning of each of these five accepted under the sun rules for how life should work. He puts a negative in there, a no or a not. Not to the swift is the race, Solomon observes as he look at life. It isn't the fastest guy who always wins. Not to the strong warrior is the winning of the battle. It's not the strongest who actually come out on top under the sun not to the clever is the getting of bread not to the smart is true wealth not to the educated comes power or favor not 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 he says and his point is this if you think a rich full meaningful satisfying life is yours if you play by the world's rules think again it doesn't work that way What? It doesn't? I mean, aren't these the rules that drive our culture? Isn't this how the game is played? Be faster and win, stronger and conquer, wiser and succeed, smarter than richer, better educated than more powerful? Aren't those the rules of the game? Solomon says, no. Now, this is one more of the cruel twists of life under the sun. Just look around you for a moment. Just, just about the time that you think that you have arrived. Time and chance, verse 11, happen to them all. No exceptions. Nobody gets a free pass. Time and chance. Now, that word chance there in verse 11 is a word that when we hear it, we usually think of it as something that is it's just randomly happening. Some, something just happened randomly. It's actually a Hebrew word, the word wapega, and it's only found in one other place in our Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 4, where it is translated there as misfortune or adversity. And so... Here in this context, it would make sense to to maybe render the word as adversity. Especially with verse 12 following immediately after, where Solomon paints a word picture of of fish who are just swimming along, enjoying their their life, and suddenly they're caught in an evil net. And then he he, he refers to the bird who gets snared unexpectedly at at an evil time. The little bird just kind of hopping around, has no clue it's entering a snare until it's too late, and clap, that snare comes down on him, and his life is altered forever. Same thing with a fish, totally oblivious to the perils of the net 
until suddenly it's yanked right out of the water and into the frying pan. No warning, no clue. Misfortune, adversity. Things unpleasant, difficult, hard, tragic, unplanned, unwanted, they come. And you don't know when they're going to come. Adversity. It messes with the rules. And that's what Solomon says. It comes to everyone, he laments. And you can't predict when or where or how adversity is going to come into your life. Time and adversity happen to them all. No one is exempt. The unexpected evil or calamity comes along and it shreds your plans and it it chews up your dreams and it stomps on your rules. That's the way it is, Solomon says. And you know what, church family? I would guess that if we allowed the opportunity, each one of us could tell more than one story about the reality of this just from our own lives. Would that be true? Would that be true that life doesn't play by the rules in your life? It doesn't in mine. I know it doesn't in yours. And you know, Solomon is not the only one who makes this observation. In Job chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, listen to these words. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to what? Trouble. We could put the word adversity in there. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Born to adversity as surely as the sparks are going to go up. When you're in a campfire at night, where are they going to go? They're going to go straight up. Sure as that, adversity is going to come into your life, into my life. Count on it. Life does not play by the rules. Solomon's right. He's right. The New Testament writer James frames the same truth this way. James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He says, come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. In other words, we're going to make plans and we're going to play this game by the rules. We're going to make money. Why? You do not know what tomorrow will bring, says James. To, To say nothing about a year from now, and the reality of it is we don't even know what this afternoon brings, do we? We don't even know what this afternoon is going to bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Why, you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. Life under the sun does not respect the rules. Adversity in a fallen sinful world does not play by the rules. Solomon, you're right. So fellow Christian, brothers and sisters, what do we do when life doesn't play by the rules what do we do with that unfortunately we cannot look to solomon in this moment because he really offers us no help no insight no counsel is going to come from him stuck under the sun he can only lament that this is the way it is so we must do as we have had to do a number of times previously In our study of Ecclesiastes, we need to go outside the book and above the sun to get help. We need to look to other places in God's word for what Solomon in this moment cannot supply. Solomon says, listen, adversity is going to come and you cannot predict it. 
And we say, you know what, Solomon, you are absolutely right. We can't predict adversity, but we can prepare for it. We can do that. We can prepare for it. We can train for the trial before the trial comes. We can prepare for the storm before the storm arrives. We can do that. And so church family, on your note page, as we, we can do that, as you notice at the bottom there, in two ways. We can prepare for inevitable adversity in two ways. There would be more that we could explore, but time will allow us to consider two. First, we can prepare for inevitable adversity by building into our faith. Building into our faith, strengthening our faith, lay hold of truth, God's truth, put, put our reliance and our confidence in something above the sun rather than under the sun. In fact, to be more clear, we must build into our faith truth about God before the adversity comes. Second, we must build into our relationships. Before life messes with the rules, we must be building those relational bonds with others so that when adversity strikes, not if, but when it strikes, we're surrounded by the love and the support of brothers and sisters and we're not doing it by ourselves. We must be building community before adversity comes. Does that make sense? There's no such thing in Scripture as the Lone Ranger Christian, is there? In fact, if you think about it, there's no such thing as the Lone Ranger, right? Even he had what? <laughs> he had Tonto, right? He had a companion. He didn't do it alone. So let's tease this out together with the time we have left. First, to be ready for adversity before it comes, I must be building into my faith truth about my God. What truth, someone asks. Well, how about the four truths that are there on your note page? These are just starter places for us. Each one of these four deserves a morning all to itself. Obviously, we can't give it that. But we, what we can do is at least touch on some of the scriptures that are, affirm the truths about God that we're going to consider and then let those kind of settle into our hearts so that our faith can anchor into those truths. And maybe during your quiet time this week, this would be a suggestion for you. Maybe you could just pull out this little note page that you've got in your hand this morning. And over the next few days, just, just hang out with these four truths about God. Visit the scripture passages that are referenced and, and pray and marinate over those verses. And maybe even memorize a few of them. Anchor your faith in these scriptures about God. Before adversity comes. That's great counsel. That's scripture. For several years, uh, several years ago for me now, but for several years I was a member of our local mountain rescue team. And during that time there was a climbing accident that occurred up in British Columbia, the details of which I have never forgotten. This is more than 20 years ago. I've never forgotten about this climbing accident, and when I think about it, it always sends chills up my back. Two climbers had completed their, their chosen rock climbing route. They had topped out, and, and all that was left was them for, to do was to rappel back down the face, the, the cliff face. 
And so they chose as their rappel anchor for the rope a tree that was on top of the cliff that was about, about a foot and a half in di- diameter. So we're not talking about some little twig. This was a big, substan- big, big tree. Confident that it would hold, they both tied into the rope and began to rappel down in classic fashion. Without warning, this huge tree, roots and all, just broke loose from its perch atop the cliff. It went over the edge, and tragically, these two climbers were killed. Later, investigators revealed that that this tree had, had taken root in just the thinnest layer of topsoil and was growing in that, and rains had saturated that topsoil. And the investigators were amazed that this tree had grown to this size with so little soil, thought it would come down much, much sooner. And so these guys were taken off guard by that. And I remember our rescue team's reaction when we learned about this accident. Note to self, note to team. Absolutely everything depends on the integrity and the reliability of the anchor. You can have cutting-edge gear, bomb-proof ropes, decades of qualified experience on your team. But man, if the anchor is not secure, if it's not reliable and safe every single time, none of the rest of that stuff matters. The anchor, the tie-in point is super important. But that is true, not just in the context of climbing. There are also, these truths are also super important in the context of doing life as a Christian in a sinful, dangerous, fallen world where adversity is sure to come. You need to have reliable anchor points. These four truths that we're going to share together about God, these are anchor points for our faith to tie into before we repel off into adversity. Four truths about God that will hold us safely and securely no matter what we're going to encounter. And we are going to encounter stuff. Truth anchor number one, God is always what, church? Always with us. Always with me. That's truth number one. Have you been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in his cross and his resurrection? Has that happened in your life? Yes, you celebrated communion a moment ago, declaring that to be true. Jesus is in your life by grace through faith. If that is true, if that has happened for you, you will, get this, never, ever do life alone again. You can't. God makes this promise to his people in the Old Testament more than once. Then he reiterates it again in the New Testament for the New Testament believer like you and me. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. As the writer of Hebrews begins to wrap up his letter to Christians, uh, he's writing to Christians who are, whose lives are just in, they're just in a tough, tough spot. Suffering material loss because of their love for Jesus losing their jobs, having their property confiscated, being disowned by their family, disinherited. They are confronting adversity in a big, big way. And so the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, gives this promise to us, to his people. God has said, never will I leave you. 
Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Allow the calm, strong assurance of this truth sink down into your soul. Look at that verse on the screen. Especially look at this verse on the screen. If you by chance brought fear in here with you this morning when you came to church. Not because you wanted to do that, but because fear has somehow gained a foothold in your life because of some adversity that you are going through. Fear has come and and you just can't seem to evict that from your heart. God says, let's read it again very slowly. Never will I leave you Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What indeed, if God is with us? Psalm 139, John 14, a couple of the references there on your note page, the same truth being affirmed. And so we say, oh, Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, you are with me right now as I sit here in this room with brothers and sisters. You have always been with me since the day that I I gave my life to you. You are so, so faithful. Never once have you taken your eyes off of me. You've never blinked as you watched me do my, my life. Never once have you not had thoughts of me that outnumber the sand on the seashore from the moment that I entered relationship with you through Jesus Christ. In the face of adversity, therefore, I will say, you're my helper. I will not be afraid. You are always with me. That's that's truth anchor number one. If you flip your note page over, how about truth anchor number two? God is always what, church? He's always in control. Do you believe that? In the Old Testament, we read in Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord. This is God talking. The God of all flesh is anything too hard for me. What's the answer to that? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? If it's coming from God. It's a rhetorical question to Jeremiah, who's going through a super difficult time. Jeremiah, is there anything I can't do? (laughs) Jeremiah says, No, there's nothing you can't do. You are in control. And God was reminding Jeremiah in the midst of extreme adversity that he is sovereign. Sovereignty means complete control. When we say that we believe God is in complete control, what we're really saying is, God, you are supremely sovereign. There's no one more than you, no one greater than you. You're the one. In Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, hear this. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will. What is that? That's control. That's sovereignty, isn't it? He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No matter how far you reach, who's in control? 
God's in control. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You don't say that to God. He's sovereign. He's in control. And so as we think about truth anchors that will carry us into an unpredictable future with hidden snares and nets, this is what God would have you and I to remember. I am always in complete control. Fellow Christian, right now, God is ruling the universe, figuratively speaking, with his feet up. He's not stressing out about that. The universe. He's never wrung his hands in some kind of anxious, nervous fear. Oh, I don't know what to do. Never paced back and forth in heaven's courts, scratching his head saying, hmm, what's next? Never wiped a bead of sweat off of his brow. Not even one time. There's nothing in the realm of the seen or the unseen that's too big or too hard for him. Nothing in your life or mine that he is unsure how to handle in the most perfect way. Why? Because he's always in control. All he asks of you and me is to believe him for that. Do you realize that? He's asking you and me to believe him for that truth. And so we say, Abba, Father, I don't know how or why I'm in this place of adversity, but I trust you. Jesus, I trust you. This isn't an accident. This is, this is not an oops that you did not see coming. This did not happen outside of your control. No matter how hard it gets, I will not doubt you. You are in control of my life. Truth anchor number three. God is always what, church? He's always good. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really, really believe that? Thank you. This is super important for us to know, brothers and sisters, because while the truth that God is always with me and the truth that God is always in control are wonderful truths, when I'm heading for the cliff, adversity has has just penetrated my life. That's when I need this third anchor. I need to know that my God is good, even when it looks like he's not. You follow that? King David, one of the best known, most beloved of Israel's ancient kings, constantly faced challenges and disappointments and dangers and threats to his life. If you know his story, his future was always colored by adversity. But here's what he says in the midst of one of those times. Psalm 27, 13, I would have despaired. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the what, church? The goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would not have made it. I would not have survived. I would have given up. David says, if I did not believe that my God was good and that I would see his goodness in my life. God is always good. So I will not despair. What a truth anchor in times of adversity. And this goodness truth serves as a, as a refuge, a, a safe place, a sanctuary that we can go to in unpredictable hard times. In fact, here's what the Old Testament prophet Nahum relied upon when adversity found him. 
Verse one, verse seven of chapter one of Nahum. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Nahum says a refuge is what God's goodness is to those who are who are inside of it by faith. His goodness is our safety, our quiet, our rest. But we have to go there by faith, in trust, in humility, in dependence. And God knows when we're doing that. And brothers and sisters, he knows when we're not doing that. He knows when we're not running into his goodness, the truth of his goodness. So we must lay hold of this truth anchor before adversity comes. And the reason that is true is because it is really difficult to hold to get a hold of this truth anchor in the middle of adversity. When you're heading for the cliff, it's hard to get a hold of this one. So when do you need to grab it? Before the adversity comes. Absolutely. God is always good, so I will not despair. And then the fourth truth anchor, God always wins. (laughs) Now see if, if you don't sense that that is true as we join the Apostle Paul in the closing verses of Romans chapter 8. We'll pick it up at verse 35. This is written to you and to me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What are all of those things? Adversity. Shall, shall all of those things separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. What's another word for that? Winning. We're winners through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else, any other adversity in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can almost hear Paul saying, hey, Christian, anchor your soul in this. Your God always wins. And because he always wins and you are in him, guess who also wins? You do. So we can't predict adversity, but we can prepare for it by building into our faith these four anchors about God. But we can also prepare for adversity before it comes by building into our relationships. Before life messes with the rules, and we already know that it's going to do that. Before life messes with the rules, we must be building those relational bonds with others, especially with our, our, our faith community, our church family, so that when adversity strikes, we will be surrounded by the love and the support of brothers and sisters, and we won't be going at it alone. We won't be going through that adverse, adversity by ourselves. Does that make sense, the importance of this? On your note page, I've included several scripture passages that hardly need comment. Like, for example, Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for what? Adversity. If we have invested in relationships, especially within our faith community, that brother or sister is going to be there 
when adversity comes. Not if it comes, but when. Proverbs 18.24, a man of many companions may come to ruin. That's interesting. What's the thought? Well, that's talking about shallow relationships, passing acquaintances where there's been no investment. You can have a ton of companions and still experience ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Relational bonds can be forged that are even stronger than blood. When ruin threatens, that friend will be there even when perhaps family would not be there because we invested in relationship. Proverbs 27.9, oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. A trusted friend who we have built a relationship with, we've invested in him and, and, or her and they've invested in us, they can speak into our life in the midst of adversity and it's, it's going to be sweet because we know where it's coming from. We know the heart that's behind it. Sweet words from a dear friend when we need them the most. That's the thought. But that only happens if you've been investing in people in your life. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting relational building, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's the day drawing near? Well, our Savior is going to return. Amen? Amen. That's the day. Before that day comes, Scripture says it's going to get really tough for those who love Jesus. It's in those times that we really are going to need each other. And the only way that's going to work well is if we've been building into one another before the day comes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Community. Relationship. Obviously, the relationships that we have invested in and friends who have invested in us before adversity shows its hand is going to play a huge role in how those times play out in our lives and how well or not so well we hold up and move through those times. If we've invested in our faith community, built relationships, not doing the Lone Ranger thing, help me. Help will be there when we need it the most. If we've invested in relationships, those friends show up and they hold us up and they pray us up and they love us up and they do it as long as we need them to do it. It's beautiful. And brothers and sisters, I've seen that. I've seen that here. I've seen that amongst you. I've watched you do this. And as I considered this truth, One of not only my dearest friends, but one of our church's dearest brothers. He he kept coming to my mind as one who does relationship investment really, really well. And so I asked Nick Sandin to come and just share with us for a few moments about the place and the power of friendships in his and Colleen's life when the icy winds of adversity unpredictably blew into their lives. And so, Nick, would you come and let's welcome our brother as he shares. Good morning. First of all, I want to ask for your forgiveness ahead of time that I tend to get emotional 
when I talk about some of this stuff. So, sorry about that. Okay. If you don't think you've had adversity yet in your life, congratulations. And my condolences, because it's coming. Um, just as the Bible says, as Tim has said, I would venture to say we've all had adversity in our life. Pastor Tim asked that I share with you this morning about the power of relationships before and during adversity in mine and Colleen's life, in our lives. First of all, I have felt strongly for many years that relationships are where it's at. God made us as relational beings. First of all, in our relationship to him. And secondly, in our relationship with each other. The Bible tells us to love one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to confess to one another, to have fellowship with one another, to eat with one another, to admonish one another, and yes, even to share our burdens and adversity with one another. Colleen and I are blessed to have a number of friends and family, both believers and non-believers. We have been told by others that we are relational people. And yes, we do love and enjoy both friends and family and even casual acquaintances. We enjoy, for the most part, people that God brings into our lives to have relationship with. Many of you know our story in the past 10 years or lives. We had adversity in our lives before 10 years ago. But starting 10 years ago, we were surprised by a number of unexpected events. 10 years ago, our oldest son, Matthew, who was healthy and in the prime of his life, I told you I was going to get emotional, was diagnosed with acute leukemia and died in 12 days. Eight years ago, after being in sports all my life, I was surprised by a heart attack at work a few hours after I played my normal one and a half hours of basketball at six in the morning. Shortly after my heart attack, we were again surprised when I was diagnosed with incurable metastatic bone cancer throughout my body that originated from prostate cancer that escaped into my bones even though I had done the recommended annual tests and everything I could do for this. Needless to say, we were devastated and shocked by all three of these events. And although the pain and sorrow was almost unbearable, especially with Matthew's death, we relied heavily on our God and on our friends and the family relationships um, that we had during this time. Because of friendships and relationships with God and with you, and with others, we were not only able to cope 
but move on and grow in our lives. We are blessed by being able to share our burdens and adversity with you. Without you, we could not have made it. In fact, for eight years now, a group of friends has formed what we call rope holders, some of whom are in this room right now, that pray for us and lift us up concerning my cancer. The term rope holders is not original to us as we have been rope holders for others. And the idea and concept of rope holders was derived from the story in Luke 5 of the four friends who held the ropes to lower their paralytic friend through the roof into the presence of Jesus because there was no other way to gain access to Jesus because of the crowds. In our case, our rope holders lift us up to the Lord regularly. And Colleen and I are forever grateful and encouraged by their love and care for us. So I will end where I began. The power of relationships and friendships before and during and even after adversity is where it's at. I am thankful to God for making us relational beings who need each other in this life. And for him providing us with you, our friends and family, to share our lives with in the power of our relationships. So I thank you. That's the real deal right there, isn't it? That's the real deal. You can't fake that. When life doesn't play by the rules and adversity unexpectedly, unpredictably comes comes into our lives like an unseen snare or, or like a net that yanks us out of our safety and our comfort, while we cannot prevent that adversity, we can be ready for it, brothers and sisters. We can be ready for it, having built into our faith truths about our God that we can hide in and having built into our relationships so that they are there to come around us in the moments when we need them most. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of this morning and this time in the Word together. Thank you for a fresh reminder of the realities of life, that adversity will come. You don't, you don't sugarcoat it with us. You tell us the way it really is. But then you supply us with what we need to be able to move through those hard times of life. Thank you for you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for the truths about you that have been so, so meaningful to us in the past and will be in the future. Lord, that you are, are with us always, that you're in control, that you're good, and that you win. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the gifts of people that you put into our lives. 
may you just be glorified as we as we do life with you in a tough world. We love you, Lord, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, Amen, amen and Amen. Stand with me, church.